few years ago, I attended a wedding of a friend in Scotland. It was up in the Bathgate Hills. I don't know if you know Scotland very well, but it's beautiful. Uh, it's up at a venue up there. And I stepped outside for a moment because the sunset was beautiful. There's this little man-made lake. Uh, so we thought, you know what, we'll go outside, we'll walk around the lake. And we came back, grabbed a drink, and realised maybe after five, ten minutes or so, that I was in the wrong wedding. <laughs> I don't know what had happened, but I've worked out the venue has two function rooms, sort of hidden but next to one another. Very quickly realised I'm not where I'm supposed to be, but I can tell you, enjoyed my free drink, went to the right wedding. But there is a difference between knowing that you're not where you're supposed to be and actually doing something about it, isn't there? That's a story for you that I tried to really tangle in to make fit as an intro. But you know that thing of like when you're in school, let's say you're skiving class, not that I know anything about that, uh, but the teacher catches you in the corridor and says, Wilson, where are you supposed to be? And you're sort of, uh, <laughs> toilet? <laughs> anyway, that's just by way of introduction. <laughs> Shall we pray before we start? Is that all right? Our Lord and our God, as we come to your word now, what we know not, teach us, what we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us. For your son's sake, we pray. Amen. So, you'll spot in your Bibles that this parable follows on from a previous two parables where Jesus is very publicly, directly, yet in some ways subtly addressing the Jewish chief priests by speaking to them in these parables. And these set of parables are a bit more allegorical than other parables and so the leaders that he's talking to know exactly what Jesus is accusing them of. A little recap with the first parable, it's over the page in chapter 21. His point is he tells us, verse 31, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of them. How scathing. What he's saying is that the least likely people, the outcasts, the underdogs, are ahead of the teachers themselves. And we'll come back to that idea later. But how dare he, right? Who does he think he is? And then before the dust settles on that bombshell, verse 33, Jesus says, listen to another parable. And this time he pulls no punches. He speaks a lot broader. He speaks about the Jewish people more generally. And he basically tells them that they've been given the privilege of stewarding a good thing. He likens it to a vineyard. And all they've done is neglect and abuse that responsibility they've been given. They've mistreated and they've killed God's messengers to them. And so in verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? He is poking the bear that is the Jewish leaders, the Jewish authorities. He wants them to know that he's talking about them. And he gets the result he's looking for, doesn't he? Verse 45 that we just started reading there. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, 
They knew. They knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him. You can feel the tension. After Jesus saying this, the disciples, the closest to Jesus, they know what he's just said. They know what they're thinking and they're trying to catch Jesus' eye and thinking, Jesus, leave it. It's time to go. Come on, just leave it. What happens? Chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. And so this is where we come to the parable that we're going to look at this afternoon. Chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. If you've got a Bible, it's going to be helpful if you've got that open in front of you. Um, there's, a little, there's a little outline on the back of the program as well, so feel free to take some notes on there. But you'll notice that this parable that Rachel just read for us follows the same pattern to that of the first two. That the blessing of the kingdom of God is being removed from those who straight up reject it and given to a more unexpected group of people. But those who will genuinely receive it. The thing is here, the main distinction of this parable is that the weight shifts in terms of where the focus is. What I mean by that is, in the first two parables, if the focus is on the kingdom being removed from one set of people, in this third parable, it does have that, but the weight shifts at the end. You've probably spotted that. That it focuses more on that second group of people. And there's a warning in it there for them too. So, shall we take a look at the parable? Let's just walk through it. Verse 2, the kingdom of heaven, this is what Jesus says, sorry. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So straight away, there's two things we should pick up on. The king, that picture of the king. The Jewish leaders would have used that picture themselves in their teaching, meaning God. The second thing he mentions, a wedding banquet. Likely referencing the messianic wedding banquet at the end of the age. The day where all God's people should be eagerly anticipating that. What a day that will be. Where God and his people will dwell together and feast together. Where we will all be welcome to sit around the table of the king. And that picture is used all throughout the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. If you don't understand that. Tell you what, the religious teachers certainly would have understood that. Now, I'm sure there are many here who can uh, tell us how difficult it is to decide who to invite to a wedding, who not to invite, that weird uncle that you wish you didn't have to invite. But the king in this story, he doesn't have that problem. He invites a whole city, doesn't he? So by this point in the story, the king has presumably sent out all the invitations. He's sent out his save the dates. When did that become a thing? But to be honest, this invitation was more of a, a public declaration of a bank holiday than it was a personal invitation because all the guests were expected to be there. They were expected to show up to this meal. And if you spot in verse 4, the word used for dinner there actually means something more like breakfast or starter which adds a weird new level of complication to that phrase wedding breakfast doesn't it that you have in the middle of the day <laughs> the point is this is just the beginning of the feast this banquet could go on for days and this wedding would be an opportunity 
for the king to put on display not only his son and his beautiful bride, but his wealth, his splendor, the grandeur of the kingdom. And tell me, I've not been to that many weddings, but isn't the worst part of a wedding all the hanging around? Well, this was before the days of WhatsApp groups, when you could just ping out a message to loads of people at once. And so what the king would do, would they would send out the servants on the day when everything was ready and say, tea's ready, come on, it's time, come on. And that's what you see there, verse 3, look with me. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Well, not once, but twice. Then he sent more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat and cattle have been butchered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Come on. Do you sense the urgency in the king's words there? Sorry if you're vegetarian, but this is culturally good food. This is the best it's on offer. It's expensive. Bear in mind as well, this is pre-fridge, pre-freezer days. So when the food's ready, it's ready. You're going. This isn't like when, you know, when your mum sort of screams blue murder for you to come down because tea's ready, come and set the table. And you get down there only to find the oven's not even on yet. This food is ready, ready. Verse 5. They paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. And so here is the first point. We see those who reject the king's invitation. And to turn down the king's invitation was essentially an act of treason, utter rebellion toward the king and his government. When these guests should have been eagerly looking forward to that announcement, they should have had their, their glad rags on, their, sho- their dancing shoes polished and ready. One writer says that this, the invitation to this wedding should not have been viewed as an onerous duty, but a joyful privilege. What had they got to do that was more important than celebrating this royal wedding with the king himself? Verse 5, they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Now we get that, folk are busy. Sometimes you have to go to work when you'd rather not. I know myself that I'll often put off the things that I don't want to do until there's something that I don't want to do more, then don't worry, I'm doing it. And some of you know as well that I, I was in York last week with Elliot at the, the Christian Union Events Week, evangelistic events for non-Christians. It absolutely amazed me at what you could invite students to when you tell them there's free food. These folk are being invited to a royal wedding. So much free food that would go on for days. And these folk must really not want to go. But this isn't that they're just turning down a nice free meal. These people's hearts are so opposed to celebrating with the king and with his son that verse 6, the rest seized the king's servants, ill-treated them, 
and killed them. Now, let's pause there, okay? Because along with the Pharisees, you guys might be sat there thinking, well, that's a bit far, isn't it? The servants are just bringing good news on behalf of the king. Why, why are they killing them? <laughs> that's Jesus' point. Jesus is like, yeah, it shouldn't happen. But this is what you've been doing. Now, if you haven't quite caught on already, what Jesus has been doing in these last few parables is he's sort of given a brief history of Israel to the leaders themselves. He says to them, look, you yourselves have been invited to come to participate in this good thing, the kingdom of God, this wedding banquet, this feast. And God has sent the messengers to you, to tell his prophets to you, to tell you it's time, it's ready. And you've rejected them. And some of you have went as far as to kill them. There's one preacher in the, the New Testament who calls out the Jewish ruling counselor, uh, Jewish ruling council, the sort of holier-than-thou judges of Israel at the time, he says to them, quite sarcastically, was there ever a prophet that your ancestors didn't persecute? And that poor guy gets dragged out of the city and stoned himself. Or more recently, John the Baptist, the last of the great Old Testament prophets, whose first words recorded in the book of Matthew were what? Repent, for the kingdom has come. It's time. Dinner's ready. But they don't want to hear it. And John the Baptist himself is beheaded. And see, this is the same message that we preach. Repent. For the kingdom of God has come. And it's good news. And sadly still, folk don't want to hear it. If you're a Christian, how many times have you tried to share the gospel with somebody and they just straight up don't want to hear it? Maybe they like the idea of church. Oh, that's nice. But then when you want to talk to them about Jesus, you'll know that that's a conversation killer, isn't it? How often have you left a conversation feeling discouraged because people just don't give a rip? Let me just share a conversation with you that I had just two weeks ago with somebody, a good non-Christian friend that I've been friends with for a few years. And I said, well, do, you, do you want to come to church with me on Sunday? And he goes, nah, church is always way too early on a Sunday morning. And I'm thinking, got you. I said, oh, don't worry, we actually meet in the afternoon. And he goes, oh, what time? And I was like, about 4, 4.15, should, should I say, sorry. Um, and he goes, oh, actually, that's my nap time. People will find any reason not to come to church, right? We could make church super seeker-sensitive. We, we could make church appealing to the non-Christian in every way, as humanly possible. We could ask Andrew Walker to get us some smoke machines, some nice lights to go up here. 
And we could provide more cake. We could serve barista quality coffee. We could ask Rich if we could sing a different style of music with different instruments. We could ask Ian to hire some better looking people. We could do all these things and more. And folks still would not want to come. Because at the very heart of it, they do not want to hear about Jesus. And not only do some not want to hear it, some people just straight up hate it. Christianity is increasingly being rejected by our society because of the message we preach. You'll find that people often get angry and hostile towards Christianity. And our message is good news. We may not experience the same sort of threat or danger that the servants here face, but let me remind you, we've got brothers and sisters around the world who do, all over the world, faithful servants of God, sharing the good news of the gospel and facing unthinkable rejection from folk who just don't want to hear it. And so there's no wonder, verse 7, the king was enraged. And he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, some have suggested, for the Bible buffs out there, some have suggested this is referring to the Jewish exile. Some people have uh, suggested that it's referring to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Either way, I don't know. At the end of the day, don't mistake this as God just flying off the handle. This is a righteous judgment from God on all those who straight up reject his good invitation on all sorts of levels and in turn reject God himself. Well, let's read on, shall we? And here we're going to see those who do accept the invitation. So let's read from verse 8. Then the king said to his servants, The banquet is ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. The king says, No, we're still having this party. There is something good to be enjoyed and celebrated. And he invited who? folk on the street corners you can imagine the astonishment as Jesus said that Jesus do you, do you know who stands on street corners there's all sorts of folk down there but remember Jesus already spelled it out to him himself remember the tax collectors and even the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God Verse 10, so the servants went out into the streets, gathered all the people they could find, and here are those who accept the invitation. The bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Do you see there the blessing of the kingdom being removed from those who just don't want to hear it and is given to this 
unexpected riffraff group of people, but those who will genuinely receive it and accept it. And note as well, it's the same invitation. It's the same wedding. It's the same king. And the hall, let me point out, is filled with people who want to be there. And it's filled with people themselves who would have been surprised to have been invited in the first place. And isn't that the testimony of every Christian believer? The more we walk through the Christian life, the more we're amazed that God would have even invited somebody like me. And if you're not a Christian, listen to the Christians you know. Every one of them, every Christian in this room would tell you that they feel that they do not deserve to be here. But by the grace of God, they are. So who's this invitation for? Maybe, Christians and non-Christians, we've got our own idea about who should be in and who should be out. Isn't church only for a certain type of person? A certain type of class? Would God invite someone like me? If he really knew me. See again, the same invitation goes out to the bad as well as the good. You're not expected to be anything special. The gospel message is come as you are. There is grace ready for you. Jesus Christ has done everything that needs to be done for you to be invited to this wedding into this kingdom. Jesus has lived a sinless life. He's died the death you deserve and he's resurrected to make you right with that king, to make you right with God. And see, like the king, God offers his best to all those who will receive it. And I'm not talking fattened calf and cattle. I'm talking eternal life. Come as you are. Well, see, Jesus could have just stopped there, couldn't he? That's a nice story. Gets a bit muddy in the middle, but, you know, it lands in a nice place. But Jesus goes on. Jesus essentially says here, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. So let's read verse 11. When the king came in to see his guests... He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes, and he asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And maybe the man could have said, Oh, sir, forgive me, some randoms came to me in the street corner, and I didn't have time to go home and get changed. I'm really sorry, I know I'm underdressed. Or he could have said, What do you mean, wedding clothes? What's wrong with this? Is this not good enough? No? Find the way I am, thanks very much. What does he say? The man was speechless. Like a little you and cut out of class in the corridor. He knows that he is out of place among 
the guests, among the other guests. The man thinks that he could come along and somehow stay unnoticed, keep his head down, enjoy the food. And the question is, has this man really responded to the invitation with a real sense of joy about the son that he's come to celebrate and with a real sense of gratitude from the fact that he's even been invited in the first place? And surely wearing wedding clothes might have been an outward expression of that. Some commentators suggest that Back in the day, kings would often provide wedding clothes for their, gifts, for their guests. And if that's true here, then the man himself has rejected that which was freely offered to him. But this man stands speechless. And the New Testament writers speak a lot about true believers wearing the right garments, about wearing Christ about wearing righteous deeds and good works. Don't get me wrong. God saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But true faith itself is never alone. As we saw in the previous parables last week, as we saw with the temple and the tree, true, authentic faith. After we receive the gracious invitation of the kingdom, we will start to change. We will start to produce kingdom fruit. By all means, come as you are. Receive God's grace. But don't stay as you are. And when God looks at his people, he sees Christ in every one of them. Every believer. And Christ is so beautiful in them that he will spot the unbeliever a mile off. We might not spot them, but God will. And one day, God will say to them, friend, how how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And they'll stand speechless, knowing that they're not where they're supposed to be. What sort of person am I talking about here? Now let me just show you one final thing. I wonder, just as you're reading that, if any of you spotted the little strange word in the king's question. See if you can see it. How did you get in here without wedding clothes? Friend. The first time I read that, I thought, it it sort of stands out a little bit. It's a bit odd. But let me help you. It appears just two other times, quite close to this point in in, in Matthew. One is just in chapter 20, where the vineyard workers have been laboring all day, and they're complaining to to the, the vineyard owner about their pay. And in chapter 20, verse 13, the owner says to, to one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. The other one is in chapter 26. In the Garden of Gethsemane, let me just read to you. 
I'm going to read from verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. One of the twelve disciples. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. We sang it earlier, didn't we? Mighty God and mortal flesh, forsaken by a traitor's kiss. See, Matthew has remembered this when Jesus said it in the parables and then again in the garden. And he's included it here for us as a warning, as a, a real-life example. And Judas called to be among the 12 people closest to Jesus. The same as the underdressed man on the wedding. Both of them were invited. Both of them came and enjoyed the metaphorical food of the kingdom but never really accepted the invitation. They didn't find joy in the sun. They didn't receive grace from the king and therefore bore no fruit. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, don't mishear me, brothers and sisters. This, the point of this, isn't to make the Christian doubt. Perhaps you're here, and you know that you've never really committed. Perhaps you've been coming for a while, and you know you haven't made that profession of faith. And you, you know in yourself that you're not wearing the correct wedding garments. You know in yourself that if you had truly committed, you would be bearing fruit. You would be wearing the wedding garments. You know, going to a garage doesn't make you a car. Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a chicken nugget. Going to church does not make you a Christian. Just going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Don't crash the wedding. One writer says, even though this man belongs to the new group of invitees, he is one who produces no fruit, here symbolized by the wedding, clo wedding clothes, and so is no less liable to forfeit his newfound privilege than those who were excluded before him. And the message here is the same to the first group as it is to the second group. Bear fruit. It's the same to the new believer as it is to the well-oiled Christian. It's the same to the believer as it is to the unbeliever. If you're here and, and you hear the message, don't reject the invitation, the good invitation. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. 
And if there is anything you've heard, I doubt there's going to be... I expect there's going to be questions. I doubt there won't be. That's what I meant to say. If you want to talk about anything, if you want some more clarity, by all means, come and ask. And let's pray that sinners would always hear this good gospel message here at REC. Can we do that now? Let's stand and let's be ready to sing when we're finished and we'll pray together. Our Lord and our Father, we stand before you as those aware of the fact that we are not deserving of your grace. And even then, Revelation 19 says, Blessed are those invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Lord, would you capture each of our hearts with the invitation of the gospel? And may REC be faithful in playing our part in sharing that invitation, that the kingdom has come. Lord, be at work in us. Change us that we would not stay as we are. Let us bear the fruit of your kingdom. And we pray in the name of the one in whom we are robed before you, Jesus Christ. Amen.